Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, striving each time around for my spare room in North Wales, to bring for you those tales of true crime you won't be too familiar with, some perhaps you've never heard of, or you may not even believe, but which are all true, that I've scoured the darkest nooks and crannies of the UK and Ireland to find. Doing this is myself, Paul, the creator, host, and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, the almost toothless negative pixie, my true crime enthusiast cat is here too as always, and most importantly, as a you kind lot, the enthusiasts of the show that keep me striving to do what I love to do. I thank you kindly for joining me in the MOG, amazing as it is always that you have, and I do hope that as the episode reaches you, then it finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. As we rumble towards the end of this series then, with only a couple of tales left for 2022, I will be spacing the episodes out somewhat. I'm rammed busy with real-life unavoidable stuff at the moment, and I can't scrimp on any tales. I'd rather postpone for the best I can do with a tale, as I've said before, than put out something I think I could have researched and written better. And the same goes for the Patreon episodes of the show as well. They get the same treatment as any other tale does. Massive thanks head out to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs this time around for new friends Jess McKenzie and Jane Wilson, Ada Diallo, plus Penny Foster, who has edited her pledge. Thank you so much, all. It is so very much appreciated of you to do so. It means the world. Now, if you, like these folks, wish to support the show and perhaps get yourself some merch, and certainly access to the full series plus of unreleased enthusiast episodes, and I'm talking tales such as Wicked Beyond Belief, Death of a Brighton Schoolboy, The Teddington Lock Towpath Killings, or The Final Straw, to name just some, then it's so easy to do, you've more chance of finding Holly and Phil queuing up for something than getting to any difficulty doing so. I wish I'd asked them to get me Peter K tickets when they went on sale the other day as well, I tell you. Just head over to Patreon and seek out the show there, it's exactly the same as it is here, or scrub even having to do that, because I've done it all for you with a link to it ever-present in the episode show notes. And you can be on those episodes and more quicker than an England fan likely being labelled a disgrace at the World Cup. This time around then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, it's our traditional Monsters of episode which I do each series. And this time around, I have two accounts for you that took place amongst other locations, in the county of Norfolk. A few stats concerning Norfolk, it's England's fifth largest county, it has the world's highest concentration of medieval churches at 659, and the most number of churches with round towers in the UK. That's 125 of those of you who wouldn't be able to sleep not knowing the amount. It's the county that's home to the Royal Family Retreat, Sandringham, Its county town Norwich's town hall has the longest balcony in the UK at 365 feet and it's a county that can name famous associates such as Princess Diana, James Blunt, the second episode in a row he's been mentioned actually, Howard Carter, the discoverer of the tomb of Tutankhamun and radio host, TV presenter, journalist, author, podcaster, rambler, shepherd of the streets and all-around hero, be it fictional, Alan Partridge, Jurassic Park. My fave stat that I discovered, and there are loads concerning Norfolk, 
but it's the town of Cromer on the county's north coast that, whilst holidaying there and staying at Cromer Hall, is where Sir Arthur Conan Doyle first conceived the idea for the most famous of all of the Sherlock Holmes stories, The Hound of the Baskervilles. After hearing local folklore concerning Black Shuck, the name given to a ghostly black dog that is reputed to roam the coastline and countryside of East Anglia. Love that stat. Back in the mid-1980s, for coincidentally, both cases took place a year apart. The county was the scene of some of the most horrific crimes imaginable, and though the perpetrator in each case didn't count Norfolk as a base of operations, the culmination of each tale took place there. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, including descriptions of a sexual nature involving children and injury details, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiasts for an episode in which we meet two monsters of Norfolk. For the first monster we shall meet, we head back to the beautiful afternoon of Tuesday the 23rd of July 1985, right at the beginning of the school holidays, and where two then 13-year-old girls, their names have never been publicly revealed, and I have no wish to speculate here, but for the purposes of the account, we shall call them Anne and Ellen, set off for a bike ride along the back road from the Cambridgeshire village of Fullbourne to head over the Gog Magog Hills, a low range of chalk hills that extend for several miles to the southeast of Cambridge, and known in the locality as the Gogs. The Gog Magog hills are not big by any means, but they are a favoured place for many for days out, for dog walking and rambling, and certainly were a favoured place for Anne and Ellen to spend time. So off that July day they went, happily cycling along and chattering as girls of that age do, or did then anyway. However, the day rapidly turned into a nightmare, for they met something that had no place in that modern day. Indeed, it would seem to be something from hundreds of years back. A swordsman. But this was no gentleman thief, some highwayman of the road, complete with tricorn hat, cape and eye mask and stand and deliver and all that jazz. In fact, the only thing he had in common with all that was the three-foot sword, complete with handle guard, that he brandished. The individual they met that day was a modern-day predator with an overpowering lust, driven by his complete obsession with sex, and he was willing to stop at nothing to get what he wanted, and to ensure he got away with it, as we shall come to see. Enjoying the cycling on that warm July day, as the girls cycled through a wooded lane, Suddenly, the idyllic afternoon was interrupted when in front of them stepped this man brandishing a sword. It measured some 32 inches in length, a wickedly looking sharp blade, and he began swinging it about in front of them. Now at first, it seemed surreal this, someone having a sharp sword in the heart of the Cambridgeshire countryside, and the girl's first thought was that this was someone who had had a few too many to drink that lunchtime and was just larking about and showing off. It was when they made a move to cycle past him, and he lunged at them, swishing the blade through the air, 
and ordering them menacingly to remain there, that they suddenly became frightened. Threatening them with the blade, the man, a well-built, dark-haired individual with tattoos on his arms and his hands, including the standard L-O-V-E on his fingers and a green and blue heart bearing the names of his two sons, Ian and Martin, on his arm, told the two terrified girls that he was a farmer and they were trespassing on his land, so he was taking them to the police. If they complied, he said, he wouldn't hurt them. Perhaps if they'd been there ten minutes either side of that fateful moment, they would have been fine, and he would have found himself someone else, and someone else he would have done, for certain. But now, he had two teenage girls at sword point. He ordered the two girls to get off their bikes, and made them wheel them into the nearby undergrowth, abandoning them there, before beckoning them threateningly to head into the nearby woods. Here. He ordered both girls to remove their underwear and to then lie on their stomachs, which, when they complied with both, he used the girls' underwear to gag them and then tied their hands behind their backs with ligatures that he produced from his pocket. Leaving them for a moment, but both girls being far too terrified to try to flee or even scream, he returned shortly and then made the girls walk back to his car an old, rusting Volvo estate that the girls took note of as he forced them into the back seat and covered them over with a blanket. Getting into the driver's seat, he started the car before driving down the hill and heading east. Now, that must be already more terrifying than you can imagine, mustn't it? The girls' ordeal was only just beginning. The man drove them almost 15 miles to a remote wooded area near the village of Bartlow, close to the Cambridgeshire-Suffolk border, before he stopped the car, got out, and then ordered the terrified and disorientated girls out also, marching them at blade point into thick undergrowth. He then asked both girls how old they were, and if they had boyfriends, to which they said that they didn't, because they were each ten, hoping that this would stop him in what they knew he had planned for them. They were both astute girls, and through their fear, they'd realised the horror of what lay in store. The man didn't care in the slightest. His lust was overpowering him, and nothing, bar death, would stop him from what he was planning to do. He then produced from a case and showed the petrified teenagers some pornographic magazines and asked each of them if they would do what was depicted there, which they both tearfully refused to. Then ordering them to strip, he indecently assaulted both girls, before brutally raping Ellen, mimicking taking photographs of each of them with an instamatic camera that he had with him in between assaults. When he was sated, he ordered the weeping girls to redress, and once they were, he promised that he would take them back to their bicycles, marching them back to the car at the point of his sword. You can only begin to imagine the feeling of relief that each girl must have felt then, that their horrific ordeal was soon coming to an end. But it was a blatant lie. The man drove off from the spot but ended up on a haphazard journey that covered at least three counties and some hundred plus miles 
backwards and forwards, before he ended up some hours later at the picnic spot of Emily's Wood, near the Norfolk village of Wheating. During this haphazard drive, the man had steeled and determined himself for what he was about to do, for he knew there was no way he could let the girls go. He'd not disguised himself at all, they knew his full physical description, what his voice sounded like, they could even describe his car. No, there was no way he could let them go. When he finally stopped the car, driving it off a lane some 120 yards into a wooded area, he told the girls that they were back where their bicycles had been left, and that he would return them to their bicycles, but individually, first taking Anne into the wood, still clutching his sword, and covering her head with a jacket. When they'd reached the clearing, he then lunged at the girl, and like a highwayman of old, then ran her through with a thin, sharp, 32-inch blade. It penetrated the lower tip of her left lung, and then went into her heart, causing a massive injury that the girl screamed with all the strength that she could muster at, before collapsing. Having done so, he then covered the girl with a body warmer, and walked back towards the car. Ellen, too afraid to flee in the fading light, had heard the scream of her friend some distance away in the wood, and knew that she would be next. Horrific, can you even imagine? When the man returned, he then put a coat over her head, and half dragged the weeping girl back to the clearing, she fully believing that she was being taken to her death. When they reached there, the coat slipped off her head, and Ellen saw, to her horror, the body of her friend Anne lying there, apparently lifeless. In her fear, exhaustion, distress, you name it, she felt her legs give way underneath her, and fell to the ground on her back, knowing that her turn was coming at any second. Sure enough, the man with the sword stood over her, and then thrust hard and accurately, forcing the sharp blade through her body until it penetrated the ground beneath her, the blade severing her jugular vein as it passed between her gullet and her windpipe. Pulling the blade out, he then struck her several other times with the sword in the chest and stomach, and when she stirred further, he had a final slash at her head, cleaving her ear in half and exposing his skull beneath her hair. He then fled into the dusk, stopping at a river near the Suffolk area on his way home to wash the blood off the sword, and believing that he'd left both girls dead. And by rights he should have, for the injuries he'd inflicted upon each were grave, to say the least. But as he cleaned the sabre, thinking this, miles away in that darkened wood, Ellen stirred. Though she had expected death, she had done everything in her power to avoid it, still conscious even after the man had pinned her to the ground and had hacked at her head. She simply had closed her eyes and held her breath, pretending to be dead. It was her salvation. Struggling to her feet, fighting off desperately the feeling of sleep that was threatening to overtake her, for it was one that if she submitted to, she would not awaken from. 
Ellen then heard Anne stir and mumble, and using her last remaining strength to lift some fallen branches, then using them as a crutch. Ellen roused Anne, and getting to her feet, the two terribly injured girls, their arms linked, made their way very slowly towards the road, some 120 yards away, where, even though Anne had collapsed, they managed to flag down a passing motorist, Peter Hullett. So shocked was he at the girl's appearance and obvious severe injuries that he took them straight to the nearest police station, and once here, as they drifted in and out of consciousness while they awaited the ambulance swiftly summoned to collect them. The two teenagers were able to give sufficient details and description of their attacker, describing someone looking like Dracula with black beetle brows and grey flecks in his hair. Accurately, the tattoos he had on his arm and hands in detail, as well as his Volvo car, right down to its rusting wheels. It was enough for police to immediately begin the hunt for the man who had committed such foul actions. Meanwhile, both girls were rushed to the West Suffolk Hospital in Bury St Edmunds, where, after seven hours of surgery, both were miraculously saved and stabilised, astounding doctors and were then moved to the intensive care unit. Anne was to spend a week in intensive care, critically injured, whilst Ellen required artificial ventilation for five days. The two girls were to spend a total of four weeks in hospital, though over time improving until each could be moved from the ICU onto the children's ward. Throughout this stay, they were visited often by detectives who, horrified by their ordeal and inspired by their survival, befriended the girls and brought them several cuddly toys and gifts. Norfolk police were even to hold a collection between officers to pay for a break abroad for both girls and their families, which they took at the end of that year, accompanied by a WPC who had become a family liaison officer. By the time they left hospital, the monster responsible for such horror had already been arrested and was remanded in custody, facing charges relating to the crime. Even from Ellen's initial description before she'd been taken to hospital, it was an accurate enough one for one of the Cambridgeshire detectives it was reported to when the girls were identified to immediately recognise the likely individual being described, and within 36 hours of the attack, Early in the morning of Thursday the 25th of July, police had swooped at a bungalow in the Cambridgeshire village of Stetchworth and had arrested 39-year-old Terence Pocock, a self-employed heating engineer who had worked previously as a plumber and who had a long history of offending, including robbery with violence, theft, driving offences, and in 1960, at age 13, one of indecently assaulting a woman and child. Taken to the police station, Pocock denied responsibility for the attack, but admitted that two days previously, he'd been given time off work to attend court for sentencing after failing to pay driving fines and receiving a suspended sentence. The case had finished early, and he claimed that rather than head back to work, he had merely driven around for a while. However, when his house was searched, underneath floorboards in the bedroom, was discovered a 32-inch sword, knives and a bayonet, and a large quantity of pornography. 
When this was put to him, and he was told that the two girls were still alive and had described him, Pocock admitted that he'd been in the wood near Fullbourne that afternoon, at first claiming that he'd been there to spy on courting couples and to take photographs of them, something that he did often, but then eventually admitted that the description given was of him, telling police that he didn't wish to put the girls through any more of an ordeal and didn't need reminding of what they were going through. Banging his face on the table at the police station, Pocock said, I wish I was dead. I used to call them bastards when I heard about people who had done things like this. And now I've done it myself. I thought they were dead. It seemed to be the only way out. It's gone too far. He then gave detectives the horrific account, as you've heard. During his confession, Pocock told the police, As I stabbed one girl, the other started to move, so I chopped her across the head and stabbed her in the throat. I did it because there would be no repercussions. They wouldn't be able to give evidence against me. Monstrous beyond belief that, isn't it? It's why he's included here. There were angry scenes when Pocock appeared before magistrates at Thetford on Monday the 29th of July 1985 to answer the charges he faced. Attempted murder, kidnapping, rape and indecent assault. For outside the court, a 50-strong crowd had gathered, jeering and screaming, throwing eggs and had even tried to rush the car to get at him. In the short hearing, he was remanded in custody with a trial scheduled to begin in December of that year as he had admitted the offences. Amid tight security, with all spectators searched and all journalists placed into the public gallery, when his trial opened at Norwich Crown Court on the 2nd of December 1985, in a 65-minute hearing, Terence Pocock pleaded guilty to all six charges that he faced, two of attempted murder, two of kidnapping, one of indecent assault upon Anne, and one of rape against Ellen. He sat in the dock with his head bowed and didn't look up once, as Mr David Stokes Casey, prosecuting, told the court of how the girls were accosted by Pocock with his sword on that afternoon the previous July, and of the nightmarish journey, first to Bartlow for the rape and indecent assault, and then on to Emily's Wood in Norfolk, where he'd attempted to murder both girls. Describing him attacking Anne, the prosecutor said, One girl was covered with a body warmer. She felt a stabbing in her back causing tremendous pain. It was accurate and it was meant to kill. That stab with the sword went through the child's back, penetrating the left lobe of the lung and the heart itself. By normal rules, she should have been dead. Continuing on to the attempted murder of Ellen, the prosecutor went on. Having left the child for dead, Pocock then came back for the other girl and took her into the wood. She had a coat over her head, and as she got to the spot where her friend was lying, he pushed her to the ground. It came off, and she saw her friend lying there. Then suddenly, she felt a stabbing in the back of the neck, the sword going right through her and sticking into the ground. The jugular vein was severed on the left side when the weapon passed through a gullet and windpipe. 
Pocock then inflicted other stab wounds into her chest and abdomen and chopped about her head. Because Pocock had admitted what he'd done, when the time came, the two girls didn't have to give any evidence in court about these appalling assaults he'd committed upon them, and he glared at the floor as the prosecutor continued. The child sensed he was still there and held her breath and pretended to be dead. The one bright point of the case is that, due to the tremendous courage and presence of mind of one of the girls, they've both lived. She wanted to go to sleep, but instead decided to help her friend. There is little doubt that if she had gone to sleep, then neither of these children would have survived. Consultant surgeon Mr Michael O'Brien, the surgeon who had operated on the two girls, told the judge, Mr Justice Stoughton, just how lucky both girls were to be alive, saying, Both girls will be scarred for life, and the psychological effects of their horrific injuries are incalculable. These two girls looked as if they'd been through a mincing machine. One had a sword wound through her throat from side to side, and the other had a sword wound through the heart, which really should have been fatal. The emotional side of it was almost immeasurable. You do not have to perform this type of heart surgery in a district general hospital. We don't have the facilities of Harefield or other specialised cardiac units. Fortunately, we have excellent staff and the girls' lives were saved. It's fortunate indeed that, isn't it? There was nothing that Adrian Whitfield Casey, defending, could say in mitigation for Pocock, describing him as a womaniser with an unhealthy interest in porn, who made no excuses for what he'd done, and blamed nobody but himself. Mr Justice Stoughton didn't mince any words whatsoever with Pocock, and as he sentenced him to five terms of life imprisonment for each of the first five counts, and the maximum two-year sentence for the indecent assault to run concurrently, told him that although there was some evidence Pocock had shown remorse, it was only after arrest, and the evidence against him was shown to him. The judge continued, These offences constituted as serious an attack as I have ever heard. You are a dangerous man, particularly where women are concerned. Your responsibility is scarcely any less than if you have succeeded in killing one or both of these girls, as you very nearly did. The attempt to kill was calculated and deliberate. You thought only of yourself trying to kill these girls because you didn't want them to give evidence. Pocock was then taken down to the cells before being transferred to Her Majesty's Prison Wormwood Scrubs in London knowing that due to the horror of the attacks, he would be a marked man amongst prisoners when details of his crimes became common knowledge. Once he'd been taken down, Mr Justice Stoughton paid tribute to the good Samaritan Peter Hullett, the passing motorist who had given sanctuary to the two girls, and the staff of the West Suffolk Hospital, the prompt action of whom had saved the girls' lives. He also praised police officers involved in the investigation, saying, In the past, police have sometimes been criticised when they failed to apprehend a rapist for some time. It seems to me that their job was very well done on this occasion. Following Pocock's conviction, 
Detective Chief Superintendent Morris Mawson, then head of Norfolk CID, praised the courage of both girls and explained how their fortitude had seen them recover well and soon were back at school. At the time of the trial, he explained that both girls and their families were away on a Spanish break paid for by police officers affected by their ordeal, saying, These girls have our admiration and appreciation. They gave us vital, crucial information, and without such help, we wouldn't have made an early arrest. We were very impressed with the way the girls behaved, their sensible attitude, and what they remembered during the terrifying ordeal which is one of the most horrifying sequences of events we have ever investigated. Pocock cut somewhat of a polarising figure after his imprisonment, when details of his background emerged. In the weeks following his incarceration, his first wife, Margaret Morris, said, Terry was a gentleman to me and our children. He was marvellous to them, as good a father as anyone would want for their children. They've said such awful things about him in the papers. All bad. Nobody said any of the good things. I honestly don't know anything bad about Terry because he's never done anything to hurt me. Yet horror like trying to kill two girls with a sword kind of overtakes anything about your bloody stamp collecting or charity work, you know? She described the man she'd met back in 1960 on a blind date as good looking. He reminded me of Elvis and how totally in love with him at age 16, they'd become engaged six months later and had married in 1962, moving to a bungalow at Thorny View in the Suffolk market town of Stowmarket and going on to have two sons with Pocock, Ian born the following year and Martin following in 1966. Margaret explained, Ian was born prematurely and we weren't sure whether he would survive. Terry was thrilled and worried at the same time. But he was so proud, and we'd end up fighting over who would push the pram. Describing Pocock as gentle and never having an enemy, a quiet, sexually normal individual who always enjoyed a joke, and who doted on his two grandchildren, she told how deeply affected he'd been by the death of his mother from cancer in 1963, and how it had made him embrace his own family. He'd only once ever laid a finger on one of their children, and that was a time he'd struck Ian for worrying his mother after being late in, and had sat and cried bucket loads after doing so. Although the couple had divorced in 1972, just short of their 10th wedding anniversary, the cause being attributed to Pocock having started a relationship with the woman who would become his second wife, Lynn Salter, Margaret and Pocock remained on good terms. She'd seen him last only two weeks before the horrific crime and he'd been fine with her. And indeed, when she'd had a recent operation, he had been her first visitor in recovery. She admitted she still felt and cared for him. She even still referred to him as our Terry. She told the press of the letters he'd sent to her whilst on remand, letters filled with remorse and in which he made no excuses for his actions, and indeed wished he was dead. Margaret said, I'll never shut my door on Terry. He's not done me any harm, or my kids, or my family, or anyone I know. I don't say it's right for him to have done what he's done, but deep in my heart, I know he didn't know what he was doing. 
Not my Terry, the Terry I remember. Knowing Terry as I do, I can only think that something has cracked in his mind. Pocock's second wife, Lynn, was less complimentary, however, saying, He should be bloody well hanged. He's caused untold misery to those poor girls. Lynn had begun a relationship with Pocock, who was nine years older than her, in 1970, and had lived with him since 1971, when he'd left Margaret. They'd married in 1979, although after their marriage, Pocock had begun seeing other women, several. This was more in line with the opinion of his workmates, who told how Pocock thought and talked of nothing else but sex, which he had at the slightest opportunity to. He would be after anything from 9 to 90, according to them. He told workmates that he often had sex several times a day with different partners, and if, whilst out on his rounds as a plumber, he was able to give a girl a lift, he would always do his utmost to persuade her into sex, which, according to him, he often succeeded in doing. So aware of his taste for womanising so much was Lynn that it had gotten to the point where he wasn't allowed out socially on his own, according to his neighbours. Yet the marriage lasted until 1983 before divorce, although the couple remained living together at number 23 Cooper's Close in Stetchworth, when, during divorce proceedings, Lynn found out she was pregnant with the couple's son Drew, who was born in 1984. A son that this devoted father and grandfather, if you believe one account, or womanising sex maniac, if you believe another, but unquestionably a self-confessed rapist and attempted double killer, was now looking at seeing never growing up, the many years of hard time he had to look forward to in prison, the cause that he'd brought on himself. And hard time indeed he could expect, for from his conviction, the risk of Pocock being attacked by other prisoners was so high, that he would be in solitary confinement for several years for his own safety unless guarded by several prison officers. Phil Hornsby, the then secretary of the Prison Officers Association, told the Evening Post that due to how prisons filled up and requirements for like offenders, it would be impossible to continue such a high level of supervision for the whole of a prisoner's life sentence, saying, It is extraordinarily difficult to keep a prisoner totally safe from other prisoners 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Prisoners have long memories, and I would suggest that if the supervision of men such as Pocock were ever relaxed, then he would be in tremendous danger. The attitude of other prisoners to this kind of criminal is that they want to be known as the one who took revenge. This view is particularly prevalent in the case of men who commit sex attacks on young girls. It took just over a month for this to happen. For on January the 9th, 1986, it was reported that Pocock had been attacked and badly beaten by other prisoners at the scrubs, having his skull fractured and requiring hospitalisation for two days. Following his release from the infirmary, he had requested segregation and had been placed on Rule 43. I can't muster up any sympathy whatsoever, as I'm sure you can't either. This is someone who committed the most appalling of offences against two girls, 
and who left both of them truly believing that he'd killed them. Someone who had set out with a sword that day. For what purpose that isn't nefarious do you do that, I ask you? Only through sheer fortune and fortitude did those two girls survive, and had they died, and it is only speculation with the benefit of hindsight, but had both of the girls died, there is a chance that even still today, they would remain as sad entries of the statistics of unsolved crimes of the UK. Though their bicycles would have been found, they were found many miles from their bikes and home, there were no witnesses to them being accosted, driven away or attacked, certainly none who came forward anyway, and none who could have alerted police to the murderous assault that Pocock had performed upon them. Although if the girls had been discovered dead, the resulting post-mortem may have been able to establish that they'd been stabbed and mutilated with a sword, no weapon would have been found abandoned nearby to establish as a murder weapon, and any forensic findings, I'm talking DNA here, well, back in 1986, it was in its infancy, wasn't it? The crime discussed here happened even days before Pitchfork's second murder, the case that blew DNA profiling wide open. As part of the investigation, though, of course, detectives would have spoken to all known sex offenders in Cambridgeshire and the surrounding counties, and would inevitably have questioned Pocock at some point. There is always the possibility that he would have cracked under questioning and admitted his guilt, but he only seemed to show any kind of compassion or remorse when faced irrefutably with what he'd done, with the evidence from the girls. And there is always the possibility he wouldn't have confessed, isn't there? And may have gone on to do it again. And I'm in no doubt that he would have to. We skip forward now to just over a year after Pocock was sent down for life. On the lengthy stretch of road through Swatham Forest, between Thetford and Swatham, the A1065 Brandon Road in Norfolk, and at about 8am on the morning of Monday the 29th of December 1986, a crisp winter's morning in the middle of the Christmas holidays, two cars were travelling in opposite directions, but heading towards one another. There were not many cars on the road at that time, but the two that are concerned here were, but for entirely different reasons. The first contained the Smallbone family from Leathering Set near Holt, who was setting off for a day's outing to visit family. The parents, Derek and Diane, had been married for just over two years, and in the car with them was Diane's five-year-old son Terry, their child from a previous marriage and in a carry cot on the back seat, the couple's five-month-old daughter, Gemma, who had been christened just two weeks before. They were as happy as any young family on a day out, full of the Christmas cheer, laughing, happy, and totally content with life. Heading the other way on the road that morning, totally unknown to the Smallbone family, was a 30-year-old homicidal maniac named Peter Malowski a giant of a man recognisable to those who knew him as Pete the Pole, and whose sole interest at that moment in time was to crash the dark blue Talbot Solara saloon car that he was driving, way above the speed limit, head on into the next oncoming vehicle that he saw, preferably a heavy goods vehicle, to take his own life and the life of the terrified girl sat in the passenger seat next to him. 
Malowski was driving almost 80 miles per hour as he approached the village of Hilborough, totally ready to end his life. It was something that he'd attempted once years before when he'd been in trouble, although then the oncoming vehicle had swerved out of the way at the last second, and this time he was determined that there would be no mistakes. As the two cars closed in on each other, Derek Smallbone, driving, had no inkling of what was about to happen. One moment he was driving safely along on his own side of the road, noticing in the dawning light a dark blue car coming towards him on the other side at a very high speed, and the next, without any warning, the car had swung right across the road and had smashed head-on into the Smallbones Ford Capri. Following the appalling sound of breaking glass and grinding, crunching metal, there was an ominous silence. Malowski, despite his best efforts, was still alive, though having received an injury to the hand and a gash to the forehead. His passenger was also relatively unharmed, though in severe shock, and getting out of the car, Malowski was straight around to the passenger side, immediately dragging the girl out of the car, and both of them then heading off in a westerly direction into the woods aside the road without even stopping to check the welfare of the occupants of the vehicle they just collided with. But although the occupants of the Solara had been relatively unharmed, the Smallbone family had fared differently. Derek Smallbone had received serious leg injuries in the collision, and Diane a head injury that required several days of hospitalisation for both. Terry, meanwhile, had only superficial injuries and was to be released from hospital later that day to stay in the care of relatives whilst his parents recuperated. His baby sister Gemma, meanwhile, was not so lucky. Due to the impact of the head-on collision, the carry cot she was in had been propelled forward, causing massive head injuries to the five-month-old girl. Despite the attempts of four passers-by who had stopped to administer first aid, Bob Burden, Alan Campbell and their friends Kathy and Mike Parker, and ambulance crews who fought in vain, Gemma's injuries were sadly too grave, and she was pronounced dead upon her arrival at hospital. No words are there. Horror beyond belief, indeed. Fifty minutes later, and some three miles away from the scene of the collision, towards the village of Cockley Clay, the giant man with blood running from his head wound into his eyes, and the fair-haired slim girl beside him, approached the front door of 5,500-acre Cockley Clay Hall, where they rang the doorbell and then moved back away from the step. When the owner of the hall, 38-year-old baronet and barrister Sir Samuel Roberts, answered the door, Having been upstairs playing with his children at the time, he was taken aback to find the pair on his doorstep and described later. There was a knock at the door at about 8.50am and I went downstairs to be confronted by this man accompanied by the girl. They said, can we come in please? And I looked at them blankly. He said, I want to give myself up. I said to the man, are you the fellow who was on television last night? And he said yes. He told me he wanted me to call the police, and so I rang an off-duty local constable, Michael Lane. He and the girl rarely looked at each other, 
and didn't speak to each other. They sat in my office in their own worlds. The couple were very quiet and dejected while they were here, and I sent my wife Georgina out to make them a pot of tea. The girl was neither friendly nor hostile towards the man. I would describe her position as being that of neutral. I don't think she was hurt in any way. They'd both escaped from a very nasty accident and must have walked at least three miles. Sir Samuel at once rang the local police officer, PC Michael Lane, who was off duty at the time, and then let the girl telephone her parents, him ultimately having to dial the number when she failed to get through twice. When she successfully did, she said simply to her father Gordon, It's me, it's all over, and I'm all right, I'm coming home. I'm at this place in Norfolk, but I don't know where I am. When the baronet had handed her his card so she could give her parents the address, surreptitiously also switching on his dictaphone to record any conversations that were had for evidential value, his barrister training kicking in. The girl told them the address, and then Malowski took the phone offer to speak to her father, saying simply, Hello, it's Peter here. I'm sorry for the trouble what I've given you. Unreal, eh? It was to be an understatement, if ever there was one. Sir Samuel continued. He looked defeated. He offered absolutely no resistance, just sat there calmly, hardly saying a word, while he waited to be taken into custody. Malowski never got to finish his cup of tea, because within 20 minutes of the call, he had been handcuffed and arrested by PC Lane before other police arrived in force. As he was taken away, it was the culmination of an in total seven year stretch of sexual and violent offending that had brought terror, fear, humiliation, distress and disgust to a string of victims. The final horrific rampage of which had taken place over the previous nine days and had finally ended in death to a baby for no other reason that the hulking monster responsible had wanted to end his own life. And you may ask, why on earth? Born in Hendon, Middlesex in 1956 to a Ukrainian father and an East German mother, Peter Johann Malowski was at first an unremarkable child, having two brothers and a sister, who spent his schooling years attending schools for maladjusted children, but who changed for the worst when his mother, Hildegard, had left home when he was 13. He became a violent and unruly pupil and quickly developed a disdain for women. His behaviour became such that his father even sent him away to a boarding school, which did nothing for his attitude and where Malowski was a regular truant from, even once burning down a storage shed on the school grounds. He went through a succession of casual labouring jobs when he left school, holding none of them for an extended period of time, before in late 1977, aged 21, he had joined the British Army, serving with the Royal Green Jackets. He spent some time posted to Berlin and Antrim with his company, remembered there by fellow soldiers as being a quiet yet likeable individual, but by the beginning of 1978, ahead of a post into Belfast, Malowski had gone AWOL. 
he was to remain AWOL for almost a year before he was caught back at a casual labouring role and received six months imprisonment in the Glass House, the Military Corrective Training Centre in Colchester, Essex, before being dishonourably discharged in 1979, aged 22. He had several periodic jobs following this, often on building sites, but most enjoyed being a minicab driver, working at this around partaking in his hobbies of badminton and bodybuilding, the latter of these becoming his main passion. He trained extensively with weights and over time had developed superb strength and an equally superb physique, of which he was immensely proud. He once hand-lifted a car whilst its wheel was being changed. Due to his size and power, he had worked also for a time as a bouncer at the former Cuddles nightclub in Piccadilly Circus, basing himself in Palmer's Green in North London where he found lodgings with a widow named Bruna Connolly, who had asked the local probation services to supply her a lodger because she'd been worried about break-ins, which I don't really see the logic of personally, but who knows. Either way, she felt safe and secure with Malowski there due to the size of him, six foot three and sixteen stones of pure muscle. Indeed, she thought of him as an attack dog. Now Malowski was well known to the probation services by the time he lived here in 1985 because he by then already had an extensive criminal record beginning shortly after he was discharged from the army in 1979. In 1980 he received a £200 fine and a suspended sentence for battering a girl and forcing her into degrading sexual acts and the following year he appeared at the Old Bailey and was jailed for 21 months after battering and raping a woman he'd lived with when she tried ending their relationship, and later received another three-month sentence for indecently assaulting yet another woman. He was back on the streets by March 1984, when Malowski then received a three-year, nine-month sentence for conspiracy to rob post offices but was inexplicably freed after serving less than a third of this sentence. Soon after he came out from this last sentence, he met a girl who later went to the police alleging that Malowski had kidnapped her, had driven her to the West Country, and once there, had continually raped her at knife point. He had, she later claimed, tried to kill himself and her by driving into the path of an oncoming car though the car had fortunately swerved out of the way in time. She'd ultimately escaped from Malowski by hiding in a wardrobe, no other information than that was available for research. But after making a statement, the girl thought that it all sounded so unlikely that she would not be believed in court, she withdrew it, opting not to press charges. After the events of Christmas 1986, as you'll shortly hear, she contacted police once again. In August of 1985, Malowski was arrested and charged with yet another sex crime, this time the rape of a 17-year-old girl, and spent more than a year in custody on remand awaiting trial. The brother of the girl was later to describe his sister as looking like she'd gone several rounds with Muhammad Ali. However, when the case was heard in September 1986, the jury at the Old Bailey ultimately didn't believe the victim, 
and found Malowski not guilty. Some of them even shook his hand after he'd been dismissed and released from the dock. They knew absolutely nothing of his previous history, of course, of his violence towards women, but instead were totally taken in by Malowski claiming from the dock. I don't know why she's making this up. The jury simply saw him as he was described later by a detective, a shy, bashful young man with fair hair and blue eyes, pleasant enough chap with a magnificent physique who attracted girls no problem, them drawn by his old-fashioned, courteous approach. He would ask them out, meet them for a drink, but then would strike. Following his release, Malowski met a dark-haired girl at the New River Sports Centre where he weight-trained and played badminton, 19-year-old Catherine Anger, who had just been accepted for a place at Brunel University, and though they went out twice on dates, Catherine decided that there was no future to be had in their relationship. Agreeing to meet him for a drink to tell him this, on the 19th of December 1986, he picked her up from her home in Wood Green in a car that he'd hired that day, a blue Talbot Solara saloon, and the pair went to the Victoria Inn in Richmond by the River Thames, where the softly spoken Malowski plied Catherine with double gin and oranges, instead of her requested singles, and all the while just persuading her to have the one that they'd gone in for. Of course, after this Catherine was quite drunk, and actually passed out in the car on what she thought was the journey of Malowski taking her home. It was instead the beginning of a nightmare that would end in Norfolk nine days later. Instead of going home, Catherine woke up in a room in the Post House Hotel in Epping in Essex, where Malowski had booked a room for two nights using the false name of Mr and Mrs Ashmore. Here, threatening her at knife point, Malowski then stripped her and forced her into performing oral sex on him, as well as humiliating sex acts. At times, with venom and undisguised fury, he spat out his mother's name mid-assault. All of the next day, he kept her locked up with the curtains drawn, kept naked and too frightened to try and ring her parents or any family or friends to raise the alarm, though she knew that they would be worried sick about her. Another night of rape and abuse followed, and then, after two days of this, they left the Post House Hotel and Melowski then drove down to Eastbourne in East Sussex, with Mr and Mrs Ashmore now occupying room 308 of the Queen's Hotel there. Whilst there, he told the terrified, brutalised and exhausted girl, I could do away with you and nobody would know. She knew all too horrifyingly that this was true. In the Eastbourne Hotel, after spending the day drinking wine and raping her four more times, amongst other perverse sexual demands, Malowski had made her have a bath and then threatened to throw in an electric fire while she was in it, and had also tried to stop her breathing after throwing it onto the bed. And so Catherine tried a tack that ultimately helped save her life. She began to humanise and personalise herself to him, talking with him gently and attempting to reason with him. 
He, in response, told the terrified girl that something in his past had taken him over and he intended taking it out on her. The revenge on women that he kept referring to for the time he'd had to spend on remand the previous year before being cleared of the rape he had of course committed and that he now confessed to her. He told her, You're a nice woman, but the anger has been building up inside of me and I'm taking it out on you. I knew it was going to snap sooner or later. You're really nice. You're wonderful. I'm sorry that it's you. It's absolutely monstrous, that, isn't it? Monstrous. By the time the Monday morning of the 22nd of December came around, Malowski had dragged Catherine out of the hotel without paying the bill and had driven along to Bournemouth in Dorset, but had run out of money by this time and had so driven along to the town of Ferndown, where he made Catherine enter a bank with him and attempt to withdraw £30 from her account by using a checkbook containing mere stubs. Fortunately, by this time Catherine had of course been reported as missing by her distraught family, and public appeals concerning her had been made, and a sharp-eyed teller had recognised the girl immediately. The teller, under the guise of checking with her own branch in Islington, where her brother Paul worked, told him that they had Catherine there, and Paul immediately told the teller to get the Ferndown bank manager to get her into his office to safety. So with the manager pretending that he needed to talk to her, he took her behind a security door, slamming it shut so that her captor could do nothing more. Now in safety, Catherine pleaded with the manager, Don't let me out again. Malowski ran out and drove off from the bank at speed, leaving the terrified girl that he'd raped a total of ten times over three days, amongst other things, to tell the police about her ordeal and issue a name and description that they at once recognised it was all too familiar to police. The search for Malowski and his car was given the utmost priority, and at 4am on the 23rd of December, the blue Talbot Solara, registration number B194RAC, was spotted by police in Edmonton in North London, and a high-speed pursuit began. However, the giant rapist, a skilled driver, managed to shake off his pursuers. Just after midnight on Christmas Eve, as revellers who had been out celebrating for a Christmas night out were welcoming in that Christmas day, Malowski was parked outside a pub in Hertfordshire, the Plough Pub in Cuffley, where 17-year-old Samantha Ettridge had been out celebrating with her boyfriend Paul White and her friends Jeanette Plummer, Debbie Mitchell and Paul Edwards. Thinking about getting home ahead of the following celebratory day, and attempting to get a minicab home to Cheshunt, the five thought themselves in luck when they asked the tall, well-built, fair-haired individual if he was a cab driver and was free, which he said he was, and so they piled into the Talbot Solara. One by one, each were dropped off at their homes, until Samantha, who lived the furthest away in Churchgate Road, was the last passenger remaining. But as the car approached her home, It showed no sign of slowing down for a stop. Instead, it sped up and drove past her home before a short time later it pulled into a lonely wooded lane nearby. And it was here 
that the pleasant cab driver turned into the monster that he really was. Grabbing Samantha by the hair, he dragged her from the back seat into the front passenger seat and then produced a knife, warning her to be quiet or he would kill her. He then drove to nearby woods, where he raped the terrified girl six times over a period of hours, threatening constantly to kill her if she resisted. When he was finally sated, at 9am he had then driven to woods near Epping Green, where Samantha was raped again, but it was here that Malowski discovered that the car was stuck in mud where they'd parked. And as he was looking at the predicament they were in, the girl made her only desperate dash for freedom. However, he was as quick as he was big and caught her, placing his arm around her neck and punching her in the face and stomach, telling her, Don't forget, I could kill you now if I wanted. Try that again and I will. No one would be any the wiser. She didn't try again. She even complied without question when he used her underwear to clean his muddied shoes and had raped her a further four times that day. A passing farmer finally dragged the car free later that Christmas day with his tractor, him noting that the girl sat inside the car, bedraggled, didn't look at him or say anything, she just sat very still and very quiet. Trauma will do that to you, won't it? By this time, when Samantha had not arrived home that Christmas morning, she had immediately been reported missing to police by her distraught parents, Gordon and Carol, and immediately it was classed as an abduction, with Detective Inspector Bill Pritchard of Essex Constabulary telling the media, Two things about her disappearance are causing us concern. One is the fact that it was Christmas, and the second is that she was not the type of person who would run away from home. Her mother Carol had added, I just want to say to my daughter, hold on, it will turn out all right. I want to say to whoever has her to leave her somewhere where she can be picked up or to bring her home. By the day after Samantha's abduction, police had linked her abduction with Catherine's a week before, though it was to be the 28th of December before police took the unusual measured risk of issuing a photograph of Malowski, which was then used on television and in newspapers, warning the public that he was extremely dangerous and not to approach him. Police were somewhat later criticised because they knew the identity of the suspect they wished to trace days before they released this picture. But Detective Superintendent Fergus Cochran later defended this decision and claimed that police were very conscious of the risk that by putting the picture out, Malowski may panic and do something extreme. Before this photograph of Peter Malowski was issued to the media, he had that Boxing Day driven the captive Samantha to the industrial estate at St Neots in Cambridgeshire, where, after a lunch of crisps, Coca-Cola and Mars bars, he had raped her once again and then left her in the car without a coat as he took himself to a laundrette, where he stripped down to his pants and washed and dried his clothes, draping a coat around himself for warmth. Returning to the car, the pair sat listening to the radio, and it was the news broadcast that they heard concerning the missing Samantha that Milowski then decided his course of action upon. 
He knew that he was now the subject of a massive manhunt, one of, if not the most wanted man in the country, and so to mark the occasion, he raped Samantha several times more, now even hanging her bra from the rear-view mirror as some sort of macabre trophy. The pair then set off and headed towards Norfolk, Malowski knowing that it would be a good hiding place for a couple of days. By 6.50pm that evening they'd arrived there, and her captor allowed Samantha to telephone home to speak to her family from a telephone box. Although of course she could not say where they were, she told her parents that she was alright and had promised them that she would be back home at 10.30 that evening, which of course she wasn't. Though he'd told her that, Malowski had no intentions of letting her go. He already knew what he was going to do from what he'd heard on the radio bulletin. After stopping to get £5 worth of petrol at 9.45 that evening, which he obtained in exchange for Samantha's gold neck chain, Malowski continued driving aimlessly around the Norfolk area, parking up around a succession of villages for hours over the following two days in between further raping Samantha, and before allowing her on the 27th to once again call her parents, her telling them the same thing that she had the previous evening, that she would be home by 10.30 that night. There was reportedly at least one confirmed sighting of the car around the Norfolk area that evening, although by the time police responded, it had long gone. By this time, the courageous girl had long since managed to get Malowski to put the knife away, talking to him and personalising herself in much the same way as Catherine had days before, and as strangely as it sounds, he began to almost identify with her. He told Samantha that he'd done this kind of thing before, and that his victim then had escaped, admitting his guilt in the crime he was acquitted of the previous September for a second time. By the evening of the 28th of December, he'd come to a decision, telling Samantha, I got off with it once, I'm not going to get away with it again. There's only one thing for it. I'm going to find a lorry, and I'm going to drive into it, and I'm taking you as well. Just imagine hearing that. He then raped her once again to coincide with this announcement, his decision, and then made her transcribe a suicide note that he dictated, and which read, Everything that has happened, blame it on my parents, the way they brought me up and treated me. I don't know what has happened to me. I can't take any more. What I am doing is the only way out. Goodbye, Pete. Unbelievably, monstrously, he then made Samantha write out her own goodbye note to her family, reading simply, To mum and dad and everyone, love you very much. Why did it have to be me? Goodbye. Two kisses. Samantha was then raped twice more, the final two times of her ordeal. Horrifically, she had been raped a total of 18 times over the period she had been held prisoner. Stuff of nightmares indeed, that, isn't it? The following morning, at the very moment Malowski had driven straight at the Ford Capri, Samantha's mother was appearing on breakfast television, making an emotional appeal to her daughter's captor to bring her home. 
Malowski had of course failed in his appalling task, though horrifically killing a five-month-old innocent child instead, as we've heard, before the giant had then pulled Samantha away from the scene and into the woods, away from the fresh carnage he'd caused. But then a change came upon him as they fled stumbling through the undergrowth, with him asking her quizzically, I wanted to die. Why didn't we die? We've got to die. I went for them head on. I just don't want to live. Why did we survive it? It was then, and only then, that Malowski showed any compassion to Samantha and told her that he would see she got home safely, as though he'd had an epiphany. He'd then gone to Cockley Clay Hall and requested to give himself up. Now, you can only wonder at Samantha's ordeal, can't you? I mean, she's already suffered the most appalling catalogue of rape and terror over a four-day period, and all the while wondering, is he going to snap and kill me right now? Using what must take every ounce of the will to survive to personalise herself to him to survive, only for him then telling her they were each to die the following day, making her write out a goodbye note, and then to be sat as passenger as a captor drove up to 80 miles per hour, just waiting for a death you are certain is on its way. Horrendous, you can't even begin to imagine it, can you? But then, suddenly, after the crash, you're alive, and an hour later, you're finally safe, as we've heard. That must absolutely floor a person, it really must. Following a tearful homecoming where she braved a gauntlet of reporters and cheering neighbours, the following day, Samantha woke up in the safety of her own bed for the first time in almost a week. She showed a remarkable, truly outstanding strength of character and resilience following her return, and only days later was pictured in several newspapers smiling in the relief to be home and safe. It's quite possible that she couldn't bring herself immediately to tell her parents about the appalling catalogue of rape that Malowski had subjected her to, which I think is likely, and of course, completely understandable if so. Her mother Carol later told the media, Sammy has steel grit. I know Sammy, and she would be tough, very tough. She said she's never talked so much in her life, talking to him on a personal one-to-one basis, trying non-stop to talk him round. They were just driving, talking and sleeping. He was quite concerned for her at times and would put his coat over her. He gave her his coat to keep her warm. Strangely enough, she's extremely sorry for him. She's obviously had to set up some relationship with this guy, like you get in kidnap cases. I think that's what saved her, because in the end, he couldn't kill her. There was a knife, I think he had threatened to use it, but she persuaded him to throw it away. She did try once to escape, I think it was on Christmas Day, but he ran after her and caught her. However, she added, If I get hold of him, leave him to me, I'll give him trouble. And however big and hard you may be, no one hits you like a mum does, I promise you. On Wednesday the 31st of December 1986, Peter Malowski appeared before Cheshunt magistrates charged with the abduction of Catherine Anger against her will, with intent to have unlawful sexual intercourse with her. 
Two days later, he was back before the same court charged with the same offences against Samantha Etheridge, where he was then remanded in custody and later committed for trial, charged with the specimen charges of kidnapping both, three charges of raping Catherine and five of Samantha and the murder of baby Gemma Smallbone. The charges of rape were indeed very much specimen charges because over that nine-day period he had raped Catherine and Samantha a combined total of 28 times. Catherine 10, Samantha 18. 28 times in all, 10 times and 18 times. Just let that sink in. Evil beyond description. On Tuesday the 16th of June 1987, Peter Johan Malowski, unshaven and dressed in a check shirt and jeans, appeared at St Albans Crown Court before presiding Mr Justice Phillips, where almost in a whisper, he pleaded guilty to each of the charges before him, although the court had accepted his guilty plea to the manslaughter of baby Gemma on the grounds of diminished responsibility instead of murder. Peter Townsend KC, prosecuting, opened his address to the court by saying, The events I have to describe are events which can only be summed up as an orgy of sex and a couple of kidnaps that finally ended with the tragic death of a five-month-old baby in a crash brought about by the defendant. The court then heard the horrific story, as you have here, although neither of the kidnapped girls were legally named at the trial, instead referred to as Miss A and Miss B. Now I would normally preserve any anonymity of course, but through researching the case, the events described are reported upon in quite detail past Samantha's return, with both girls being named constantly in the media, so it isn't a massive jump to at all. As I've named them here, it's not meant in any way to cause discomfort or sensationalise, but rather to identify both girls that much more for the remarkable spirit and fortitude they displayed and how they didn't let something so horrific define their lives. The judge heard that both were bright, intelligent girls from good and loving families, Catherine having been accepted for a place at Brunel University and Samantha then preparing for her A-levels and towards both, Malowski had, I quote, exhibited what can only be called the morals of the farmyard. He kept threatening to kill each girl, the prosecutor said, continuing. It is quite clear that over the course of the time that he had each of these girls in his power, he induced in them not simply a complete terror and total fear of him, but by reason of that terror and total fear of him, he induced almost also in some sort of perverted way a sort of loyalty. It was that, he claimed, which had stopped Catherine from trying to escape on the way to Eastbourne, with her even promising out of fear to stay with Malowski another night, but on the strict promise that he would not touch her further and there was to be no further sex, a promise which he ignored. It was also that which prevented Samantha from immediately telling her parents the full account of her ordeal. Struggling for any mitigation, defending counsel Michael Hubbard Casey had said, in Malowski's defence, that he was a giant bear of a man harbouring deep-seated psychological problems, 
who was always seeking relationships with women, but conditioned to reacting violently when rejected. He told the court, He was a man looking for affection, who was triggered into these acts by memories of his appalling childhood. If, as a child, you had been exposed to beatings such as might be given to an animal, no wonder that lurking in you would be the morals of the farmyard. He had, his whole life, been conditioned to behave as he did. That was never his fault. It was a sentiment that Malowski's father later angrily contradicted, saying that his son had lied, cheated and stolen his entire life, had broken his family's hearts, had disgraced the Malowski name and had now been disowned by them. He even went so far as to say that Malowski should hang for his crimes. The case was then adjourned for sentencing pending psychiatric reports as requested by Mr Justice Phillips, who was of a dilemma as to what to do with Malowski, send him to prison or to Broadmoor. Five weeks after his trial, on Friday the 31st of July, he was back in the dock at St Albans Crown Court, where Dr Kypros Lucas, a consultant psychiatrist at Broadmoor, told the court that Malowski would potentially be dangerous in a prison environment, as he may become the victim of a homosexual attack or interests whilst there, which he may react violently to, or he may receive threats to his life as a sex offender, and this may lead to a dangerous situation with his suicidal tendencies. The origins of his problems went back to his childhood, and to his liking for alcohol and drugs which had a disturbing effect on his behaviour, and the latter of which he may be able to obtain in prison also. Malowski's defence counsel Michael Hubbard then asked Mr Justice Phillips to commit him to Broadmoor with a restrictive order, which meant that he couldn't be released merely on the opinion of doctors there. He would also have to be approved by the Home Secretary of the day, many years ahead, and by making such an order, it would also allay public fear, because if no order was made, Milowski might be released into the public without their knowledge. Dr Lucas agreed with this, saying, There is always, in the minds of the public, concern that once treated, a person might be released. I would not expect him to be released from Broadmoor by reason of the time it would take to treat the disease. Not really a soft option then. Mr Justice Phillips indeed then sent Malowski to Broadmoor without limit of time, telling him, I do not propose to catalogue your appalling list of rapes, kidnapping and manslaughter to which you have pleaded guilty. I believe it is no exaggeration to say they have horrified the entire nation. Psychiatrists have agreed that you suffered from severe psychopathic disorders and that you present an extreme danger to women although not exclusively. One of the examining doctors has said it might lead to homicide in prison. No one can say when you will be able to be released into society. Certainly, it will not be safe to do so in the foreseeable future. My particular concern is to see that the public is safeguarded and to put you in a secure place where there is not the slightest possible chance of you returning to your crimes. Upon hearing this, Malowski stood without emotion and said nothing, then simply turned and was led away. Catherine was in court to see him sentenced.
Following Malowski's sentencing, his brother Michael, a former heavyweight boxer, told the Buckinghamshire Free Press, From the moment we heard about what had happened, we felt great sympathy for them. Of course, we felt shocked, but we were very sorry for the worry they must have gone through. It ruined our Christmas just as it must have theirs, and I expect every Christmas they will think of what happened as we will. After this, I couldn't talk to him as a brother. I don't know the man now. The Malowski name leaves a very bad taste on the public's lips. I was hoping he would get a long sentence so that when he comes out, he gets some help. He should have been given help before. As he said sorry straight away, I wonder whether he knows what he's doing. Catherine's mother, meanwhile, was quoted as saying, The swine, the swine, I just hope he is never released. While Samantha's father, Gordon, said, He's conned the psychiatrists into thinking he's insane. I hope he rots in Broadmoor. Now there was no quote from Catherine that I could find whilst researching, but it is reported that as best as was possible, as I said before, she refused to let her ordeal define her life and did indeed attend Brunel University. I did, however, find a quote from Samantha following Malowski's sentencing, which I think shows the true character and spirit of her and the remarkable young woman she was, for she was quoted as saying, It's embarrassing to be told I'm courageous. I just did what I thought best to survive in the situation. I haven't thought much about it in the last few months. I'm up to my ears and my A-levels, and I haven't time for anything else. A remarkable woman indeed. Now, for such appalling crimes, I'd never want an individual like that back on the streets at all. And though you'd think the chances of him being released after the horror you've heard him responsible for here were bugger all, I found whilst researching one account, a tweet from self-styled supercop turned investigator Mark Williams Thomas, certainly not the word I would use there for him, that either, give or take a couple of letters maybe, and which claims that in February 2013, Peter Malowski had been freed, then aged 57, after being locked away in Broadmoor for 26 years, though I could find no further information to corroborate this. I would hope this wasn't the case, wouldn't you? So, two horrendous tales there to rival any of the monsters of episodes we've had in previous series on the show, I'm sure you'll agree. I'm amazed that both cases aren't more familiar than they are. And to begin with Pocock, it has to be sheer fortune that both of those girls lived following their injuries. It's quite remarkable. I believe had he killed both girls as he thought, he would have gone on to commit further atrocities. As I said before, who goes out armed with a three-foot sword for any good reason? And for someone as sexually obsessed as he was, I would think it likely that he'd committed further sex crimes between the ages of 13 and 39 though perhaps they've gone unreported or he's been unrecognised in them. Speculation, of course, I just think it's a distinct possibility, and fortunately, such a dangerous predator was swiftly apprehended and taken off the streets for a very deserved and hopefully very difficult life sentence. Malowski, meanwhile, 
There seems with his case a catalogue of failings there, from his early release from several sentences to him being acquitted of a crime that, had the jury been able to know of his previous offending history, which of course they were legally prohibited from, he would have unquestionably been sent down for, hopefully for a lengthier sentence than previously. And that would of course have saved two young women from going through a more horrific ordeal than you can ever possibly imagine and the life of a five-month-old baby girl who today may even have been a mother herself. How must her family have ever even begun to come to terms with that? Infuriating, tragic and horror beyond belief. I personally have very little faith in anything that comes from Mark Williams Thomas after much of the stuff I've read and having met him, and I would hope his claim concerning Malowski being released almost a decade ago is not correct. Sadly, sent without limit of time to a secure hospital some 36 years ago now, means that indeed, there is the very likely possibility that today, he is free. I could find no record of his death, so he may today indeed be walking the streets. Not a thought I particularly like or feel comfortable with that. What do you think? My opinion, two individuals who never again deserve to walk the streets. I would love as ever hearing your thoughts and feedback concerning the accounts you've heard in the episode Monsters of Norfolk, which by now I'm sure that you know where you can do so. There's always a thread up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or you can do through any of the show's social media links. Don't be strangers, I'm always happy to shoot the breeze with you wherever. I shall be back with you very soon with another tale. As I said, we're rapidly moving towards the end of this series right now, but a few more to push out before the year draws to a close. I thank you all as always for joining me in the MOG today, and all that remains for me to say is that I've been... I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, keep it real, and goodbye for now.